A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. I am Jamie Redfern of the podcast, A History of Hannibal and the Punic Wars. No, you're not lost. This is indeed the history of Byzantium, with Robin Pearson. Since the time of Dido and Aeneas, there has always been a great rivalry between those two great cities of the Mediterranean, Rome and Carthage. In my podcast, I cover just a few of the wars between these two great powers. Robin is about to get into another the new Greek Rome at Constantinople, and a new Vandal Carthage, and Belisarius's amazing campaigns. I cannot wait for Robin to get into this exciting period of history. So, I shall shut up and let you enjoy the show. Hello everyone. And welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 15, Justinian. If you haven't heard Jamie Redfern's podcasts, I suggest you check them out. There would be no Constantinople, no Byzantium, if Rome hadn't won the Punic Wars. And Jamie is dedicating a whole podcast series to the life of Carthage's great general. Jamie has already completed a similar treatment for Alexander the Great, so there is plenty of excellent audio waiting for you on iTunes or at the History of Podcast.blogspot.co.uk. Last time, we introduced the man who became emperor after Anastasius, Justin, a Balkan peasant turned soldier whose first acts upon securing the throne were to reorient the imperial attitude toward Christianity. Justin's firmly held orthodox beliefs led him to restore communion with Rome and persecute those eastern monophysites who he could get his hands on. The power behind the throne, it has always been assumed, was that of Justin's nephew, Justinian. It is he who we now need to introduce. These next few podcasts are all going to feature fairly detailed introductions to the characters who will inhabit Justinian's court. Some of the books on the period almost list off a dramatis personae, like the program of a play, to make sure you know who everyone is and how they relate to one another. I'm trying to spread these introductions out amongst the narrative so you don't have to memorise too much all at once. Stay with me, and future podcasts will be far more rewarding because of the work we put in now. 
Flavius Petrus Sabatius was born around 483 to Justin's sister Vigilantia and her husband Sabatius. They were a family of peasant farmers in the village of Teresium, not far from where Justin had been born. We know nothing of his early years, but at some point while he was a teenager, his family headed east at the invitation of Uncle Justin, who, now that he had become a respectable soldier in the capital, was determined to find positions for his family. This included Justinian's sister, also called Vigilantia, and Germanus, another of Justin's nephews, who we met briefly way back in episode 6, fending off an invasion by the Bulgars. It was young Petrus, though, who Justin clearly favoured, as he formally adopted the boy, and in gratitude, Flavius Petrus Sabatius added the name Justinianus to his name, and so is known to us in English as Justinian. It was that last name that he would be known as by his contemporaries, and by history. Justinian's face is more familiar to us than perhaps any other Roman emperor because of the survival of the famous mosaic in Ravenna, which you can see on the artwork for this podcast and the picture for this week's episode at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com. He was described as of medium height, neither fat nor thin, with a round shaved face, a sharp nose and curly hair. Like many a poor man made good, Justin wanted to ensure that his adopted son had the kind of advantages that he didn't. This meant that young Justinian received the best Roman education which money could buy. This would of course have included the traditional liberal arts with grammar, rhetoric, law, history and so on. But by now this education would also involve plenty of religious instruction and some exposure to the Neoplatonist philosophy which had tried to marry classical philosophy with Christian theology. Some threads of this thought sought to identify the one true God with the concept of a transcendent realm where the conflicts of lower domains, such as ours, were reconciled. Historians have surmised that Justinian's education helped shape the distinctive worldview he would later demonstrate, and so a little speculation on what his education may have taught him could be valuable. Born in the West, like his uncle, Justinian would have inherited his family's predisposition toward orthodoxy, the Pope, and a nostalgia for the Western Empire. Once his education took hold, he would have been steeped in the history of a people who throughout their writings saw their empire and their laws as upholding civilization against barbarity. His philosophy teachers spoke of a realm where the one true God brought everything to peace, and his religious education would have taught him that the job of the Roman Empire was now to mirror the kingdom of heaven on earth. For Justinian, therefore, an ideology may have been developing, which saw the Roman Empire as needing to retake what was lost, not just for civilization's sake, but because it was what God willed. The unity and peace of that higher realm should be brought to the earthly empire where all people should unite under one law and one belief in one God. A little armchair psychology also gives us clues as to what drove the young man once power was within his grasp. Justinian was, after all, an outsider in Constantinople. He grew up on a farm in a Latin-speaking village that no one had ever heard of. 
He stepped into a Greek-speaking world where many of his classmates would have had an intrinsic understanding of language and culture that he didn't. It's easy to imagine in Justinian an insecurity stemming from this disadvantage and a feverish desire to prove that he was as good, if not better, than others. William Rosen, who writes very entertainingly about Justinian, suggests that he may have had a convert's enthusiasm for Constantinople and the circles he was now moving in. It must all have seemed so exciting compared to the rural surroundings of his formative years. To bring us back from speculation closer to the evidence, the sources describe Justinian as a good student, bright, alert, and interested in multiple topics. He would turn into a workaholic and insomniac as time went on. Contemporaries refer to him as being constantly at work, and Procopius reports stories of his late-night fretting around the corridors of the palace. We should note, however, that Justinian was keen to emphasise this himself, writing in some of his edicts about his tireless work to restore the empire. There is little evidence to suggest otherwise, though. One law which Justinian was directly involved in drafting concerns the regulation of the price that Constantinople's small farmers could charge for fresh vegetables. If there was something he could work on personally, then he would. We're also sure of his devotion to Christianity. Procopius tells us that he took Lent very seriously fasting for two days and then abstaining from wine for the rest of the season, living off wild herbs dressed with oil and vinegar. The personal writing of Justinian, which survives, reveals frantic theological speculations on Christian doctrine. Through this and the laws he passed, we see a genuine concern for his faith and a real hostility to the enemies of the church. This has been, of course, a far more thorough introduction than most emperors receive, which, as I pointed out last time, is a reflection of both the length of his coming reign and the sheer amount of sources that have come down to us. Once his education was complete, Justinian was enrolled in various palace regiments, simultaneously avoiding hard military campaigning, while also gaining a good deal of insight into the politics and intrigue of court life. Justinian may well have used this knowledge to ensure that Justin would emerge as Anastasius's successor. Justinian was about 36 at the time of Justin's accession, and was one of the imperial guards. Two months later, we get a pretty clear insight into how close nephew and uncle were when we find Justinian himself writing to the Pope, inviting him not just to send representatives to Constantinople, but to come himself to end the schism. Clearly Justinian felt confident in his uncle's support to make so bold a venture, and he wasn't done there. In 519, a group of monks from the province of Scythia gained notoriety by formulating a new explanation of Christ's nature that might be able to heal the rift between the Orthodox and the Monophysites. This doctrine became known as the Theopashite formula and argued that one of the Trinity had been crucified. This formula, in theory, could satisfy both sides of the theological divide. Basically, there was a divine part of Jesus, and by occupying his human body, it could be brought to suffer on the cross. 
The key here was to keep the one nature of Christ, the mono nature of Christ, as divine, to keep the monophysites happy, while also showing that he did genuinely suffer in a human body to satisfy the orthodox. The relevant point here for us is not really the theology, but the politics. The Orthodox in Constantinople were very wary of any doctrine that looked to be compromising what they had just celebrated the restoration of. However, the Theopashite formula received the support of Vitalian, whose Orthodox credentials could not be doubted, and the delegation of monks were encouraged to make their case to the papal delegates who had arrived to end the schism. They were, of course, not in the capital to negotiate and turn the monks away. The monks, though, determined in their beliefs, headed for Rome, where they were to remain for 14 months, irritating the Pope until he could expel them. In the meantime, though, Justinian listened to them and wrote to the Pope to oppose the new formula. Then, a few days later, after thinking it over, he changed his mind and wrote again, urging the Pope to accept the proposal for the peace of the Church. Of course, the Pope wasn't interested in any of this, but it tells us several interesting things about Justinian. Of course, there is the sheer brazenness of the Emperor's nephew writing to the Vicar of Christ to tell him his opinions on theological matters. There is also some suspicion that Justinian didn't want Vitalian to be the man who had supported the formula which unified the Church. But perhaps less cynically, we can see this incident as evidence of Justinian's flexibility and genuine desire to unite the church. Despite the persecution that his uncle was unleashing on the Monophysites, Justinian could already see the value in a formula which would allow the church to be brought back together. One church of one empire worshipping one god. Justinian would not forget the potential he saw in the Theopashite formula, and will return to it down the road. By 519, Justinian had been promoted to Count of the Domestics, and a year later he was master of one of the precentral armies, from bodyguard to general, in two years. It's now that we catch up with the narrative from the last podcast, and the verdict of history remains unanimous that Justinian engineered Vitalian's murder in order to secure his own position as heir presumptive. However pious a Christian he might be, we can be sure that moral concerns didn't stand in the way of his ambitions. Justinian had risen from peasant to potential Caesar, and he wasn't about to let that slip from his grasp. Soon afterwards, he gained the rank of patrician, which paved the way for him to become a senator, and in 521 he was made consul. One of the few responsibilities left to this once great office was to host and pay for the consular games to be held at the start of the new year. Justinian was determined to win the favour of the crowds and also wanted to draw a contrast between the new regime and the prudish, penny-pinching era of Anastasius. So he spent and spent and spent. Estimates suggest Justinian splashed out about £4,000 of gold on decorations, stage machinery, 20 lions, 30 panthers, and a number of other exotic beasts 
who were to be fought and killed in the Hippodrome. A certain amount was laid on in handouts and freebies for the people. The games were intended to be the most lavish public spectacles that Constantinople had ever seen, and few claimed that they weren't. The chariot races were said to be of such superb quality and caused such excitement that the final contest had to be cancelled for fear of serious public disturbances. Justinian handed out magnificent horses as prizes to the charioteers. No expense was spared as the consul put Anastasius's treasure reserves to the kind of use that the deceased emperor would have thoroughly disapproved of. The games were a success for Justinian but he was still aware of his uncle's precarious position. He was, after all, an upstart emperor, with no political base of support beyond the palace guards. So Justinian decided to secure a base himself, and the expense of the games had naturally endeared him to the deems. I mentioned back in episode 10 that emperors had tended to favour one of the factions over the other, and although Anastasius had tried to avoid the issue, he had been associated with the Greens. Justinian, therefore, sought out the Blues. Here, after all, were a professional organisation who could chant support for his uncle, win races in his honour, and provide a gang of street toughs to give him muscle, should any opponents need reminding of who the new men in charge were. Justinian's covert and overt support for the Blues became quite extraordinary over the next few years. They took their new political support to mean that they had a license to banditry and began assaulting their enemies, extorting protection money or robbing people's houses. Some in positions of authority were attacked for reporting their crimes with Justinian apparently looking the other way. By 523, the Blues were accused of openly murdering their opponents in daylight, and respectable people everywhere were aghast at the abuses going on. When a well-known citizen was killed inside the Hagia Sophia, news reached Justin, who was furious. It's not clear how much he knew about what his nephew was up to, and he reacted firmly, executing those involved and handing out strict punishments to other members of the deems. Justinian did not intervene, and probably realised that he had let things get out of control. He began to rein the blues in, and by 527 issued a law which made it explicit that justice should be even-handed for rioters in the cities. We'll leave domestic concerns until next episode, and finish this week's instalment with the foreign policy issues which Justin had to deal with during the earlier part of his reign. In the West, relations with Theodoric's Italy began to deteriorate soon after Justin had smoothed over the reunion of the churches. As you know, Theodoric's great fear was that the empire would want to reclaim direct rule over Italy, destroying the safe and favourable position which his people currently enjoyed. A series of events conspired to make Theodoric increasingly paranoid, that his fears were coming true. In 522, Euthoric, Theodoric's son-in-law, died, leaving only a four-year-old son as heir to the Gothic throne. A few months later, and Pope Hormisdas, a strong ally of Theodoric's, 
also passed away. His successor, Pope John, was associated with the pro-imperial faction in Rome, and rumours began to swirl that senators were openly writing to the emperor to discuss how the Goths could be removed from the equation. Soon, an actual letter was found, and a senator named Albinus was accused by the Goths of conspiring with Justin. A highly educated and respected senator named Boethius attempted to defend his friend. Boethius argued that the letter was not a personal one from Albinus, but one expressing the views of the Senate and merely keeping their lawful sovereign appraised of the situation in his province. If you're going to punish Albinus, Boethius argued, then you might as well punish all of us. Unfortunately, some of Boethius's enemies at court took this to mean a confession of guilt and charged Boethius with treason. Theodoric took personal charge of the case and condemned him to death, seemingly to teach the Senate a lesson. The arrest and execution of such a popular figure took the other senators by surprise and doubtless pushed many of them into the pro-imperial camp. Boethius took revenge on Theodoric with his pen and while waiting for his execution composed a book called The Consolation of Philosophy where he lashes out at Gothic depravity revealing many of the injustices which the Italians were feeling under the Gothic yoke. That fateful year of 522 saw things go from bad to worse for Theodoric. Across the sea in Carthage, the Vandal king Thrasamund died. He had been a strong ally of the Goths and was married to Theodoric's sister, Amalafrida. The new king was Hilderic, who was the son of Huneric and Eudocia, the daughter of Valentinian III. You may recall from the history of Rome that she was carried off during the Vandal sack of Rome and had brought up her son to appreciate his Roman heritage. Hilderic went further than that, abandoning the Arianism of his people and becoming a Catholic. Hilderic was already on friendly terms with Justin and Justinian, and upon his secession he put an immediate stop to all the anti-Catholic policies of his predecessor, and when Amalafrida protested, she was locked up and her Gothic retinue were murdered. As if this weren't bad enough for the Gothic king, three years later the dutifully orthodox Justin announced a new law banning Arianism within the empire. Their churches would be closed, and those refusing to recant would not be allowed to hold public office or serve in the army. Arianism was no longer a force within the empire, but as with any sect, it hadn't been wiped out completely. The law was quite an affront to Theodoric, of course, because he was a patrician within the empire, and his people were Arian. The law was calling into question whether he could rightfully rule the Italian prefecture. So in the autumn of 525, Theodoric sent Pope John to Constantinople to argue his case. Not missing a trick, though, Justinian rolled out the red carpet for the pontiff's arrival, greeting him with all the splendour and dignity that could be afforded. The Pope's status as the highest patriarch in the empire was reaffirmed, and Justin even insisted that he be re-crowned by John personally.
the Pope stayed in the capital for five months and celebrated Christmas and Easter in the Hagia Sophia before returning to Ravenna with some concessions in hand. Despite getting Justin to agree to remove the harshest restrictions on the Arians, Theodoric was clearly unhappy with reports of just how friendly John had been with the Emperor. Upon his return in 526, he was imprisoned and died shortly afterwards, although historians believe he was already ill and on his way out. Still, when his body returned to Rome, there were protests, and he was viewed as a martyr by the Catholics, who were looking with increasing suspicion at their Gothic Arian king. The new pope, Felix IV, was chosen specifically for his sympathy to the Gothic regime. Meanwhile, in the east, the news of Anastasius' death prompted the Persian king Kavad to send a note to the new emperor, reminding him that he still wanted money to be paid to guard the passes through the Caucasus Mountains, and also that the new city of Dara, which Anastasius had built, was an illegal breach of the treaty between the two great empires. Justin was slow in responding to these requests, which had, after all, been the pretext for war back in 502. So Kavad encouraged the Lakhmid Arabs under their chief Al-Munthar to raid Byzantine Osrohini. I should really say Al-Munthar ibn Notman, <laughs> thanks to listener Kodadad for the pronunciation, and do check the map from episode 11 if you have forgotten where we are. Al-Munthar's raid was a success, and he managed to capture the local dukes and offer him for ransom to the Byzantines. Justin now sent his reply, a firm no, to Kavad, and negotiated for the return of the dukes and other prisoners in February 524. During the negotiations, news came of yet another incident that would require Justin's attention. You may need to refer to the map from episode 8, to follow this one. In 523, a new king had ascended to the throne of Himyar, which covers the area of the modern Yemen. The new king, Yusuf Dunuas, was Jewish and announced that all the Christians in his kingdom should either convert or be killed. This included the Aksumite, or Ethiopian garrison, who lived in the city of Zafar. Yusuf offered the troops safe passage home, and once the terms were accepted and the gates were open, he slaughtered them. Next, he moved on to the city of Najran, which had a large Christian population. This time, he locked a couple of thousand Christians in a church and set it on fire. Legend has it that a group of virgins, upon hearing the news, rushed down to the church to jump into the fire, crying defiantly how sweet it was to breathe in the scent of burning priests. News of these atrocities offended Justin, and worse, Yusuf had hoped to stir up the pagan Lachmids to join in their attacks on the followers of Christ. Al-Muntha had many Christians amongst his followers, and so wasn't having it, and Justin dispatched the Patriarch of Alexandria, Timothy, to negotiate with the King of Aksum about crushing this enemy of the faith. Caleb, the king of Aksum, was happy to seek revenge 
and in the winter of 524, a Byzantine fleet carried the Aksumite army to Yemen. It took two years to defeat him, but as the Ethiopian force descended on Yusuf, he accepted that his time was at an end and rode his horse into the sea. Although this incident is far from our usual field of operations, it was seen as important in Constantinople to encourage the spread of Christianity as well as gain access to Red Sea ports, which could help circumvent Persian dominance of the trade routes. From a longer-term perspective, I'm sure you can see the significance for our story of religious turmoil in the Arabian desert. We'll pause there for now, though. In two weeks' time, we return to the conflicts in the East and the West, as well as introducing Theodora, the future wife of Justinian, and a woman who would rise from the gutter to become Empress of Byzantium. Thanks again for listening, and don't hesitate to send in your feedback on iTunes, at Facebook, or at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 